All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. Tonight's case is Katz versus the United States. It's a 1967 case and the person uh, who gave his name to the case is somewhat of an unlikely hero. He was a bookmaker specializing in college basketball games and he took his wiretapping case to the Supreme Court and in a seven to one decision expanded our privacy rights under the Constitution. We're going to learn more about his story and the significance of this case over the next 90 minutes. But we're going to begin by listening to Judge Justice Samuel Alito uh, in his confirmation hearings where he talked about the importance of the Katz case. Let's listen. Sometimes changes in the situation in the real world can call for the overruling of a precedent. An example of that is provided by uh, Katz versus United States, which I was talking about this morning in relation to wiretapping. The old rule under Olmstead was that in order for there to be a search, you had to look to property law. You had to see whether there was an invasion of a property interest. And then with the development of, of electronic communications and electronic surveillance, wiretapping, or other forms of electronic surveillance, which is what was involved in CATS, the Supreme Court said that this isn't uh, a sensible way to apply the Fourth Amendment principle under the conditions of the modern world. And they said uh, famously that the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. So they shifted. They found the doctrinal underpinnings of the old Olmstead rule to be, to be undermined by developments in the society, and they shifted the focus from from property law to whether somebody had an expectation of privacy. So our two guests at the table are going to unpack that story for us tonight. Let me introduce you to them. Jeffrey Rosen is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. The Constitution Center are partners in this Landmark Cases series this time and in the first round in 2015. Uh, he is also the author of numerous books about the law and the court. His latest is a biography of William Howard Taft that's just been released. Jeffrey Rosen, thanks for being with us tonight. So great to be here, Susan. Jamil Jaffer is the founder of the National Security Institute and director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law Center. He clerked for Neil Gorsuch twice in the federal court system and uh, former counsel and advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Intelligence Committee and also President George W. Bush. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for having me. So uh, as we begin, uh, Jeffrey Rosen, we uh, worked with you on selecting these cases, and this was the one you wanted to do. Why is this case interesting to you? Because it's maybe the most important privacy case of the 20th century. As Justice Alito said in his confirmation hearings, this was the case that repudiated the idea that you needed to have a physical trespass to trigger the Fourth Amendment. 
It was the general warrants and writs of assistance that sparked the American Revolution, but in an age of electronic technology, it made no sense to say that you had to trespass on private property in order to have an unreasonable search of our persons or electronic effects. And by declaring that the law protects people, not places, the court set the stage for moving the Fourth Amendment into the electronic age, and that's precisely the debate that we're having today. You have spent much of your recent career kind of focusing on, on national security law. Where does CATS fit in that pantheon? How important is it? Well, I mean, CATS is the central case, as Jeffrey just laid out, for how we think about the Fourth Amendment, how we think about the Fourth Amendment in surveillance. And uh, one of the key issues in national security law today is surveillance and how the government conducts surveillance. It's a topic of much debate. After Edward Snowden's revelations, it was a topic of new legislation in Congress. And there continue to be debates today at the court, even this term, are two uh, major cases involving, uh, involve, well, at least one involving electronic surveillance and two involving the Fourth Amendment. Um, and so it continues to be a very much a hotly debated topic um, uh, at the court and in, in our political system. Well, we need to spend some time just uh, on the Fourth Amendment itself. So I'm going to put the language of it on the screen. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So Jeffrey Rosen, a bit of a history lesson. What were the founders thinking, and what gave rise to this amendment? So Chief Justice Roberts has quoted the speech of James Otis in 1763 denouncing the writs of assistance. And John Adams said, at that moment, the child revolution was born. So that's how important this historical story is. And the writs of assistance and general warrants allowed the king's agents to break into people's homes searching for evidence of the fact that they hadn't paid the hated tea taxes or had published anonymous seditious pamphlets criticizing the king. And the general warrants didn't particularly specify the places, but just said, go find the authors of these pamphlets or go find the people who didn't pay their taxes. So there were instruments of tyranny that allowed the agents to rummage through places indiscriminately. And by striking down the general warrants as tyrannical, uh, common law courts established the principles that were embodied in revolutionary era state constitutions. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 has a longer version of the Fourth Amendment. And when James Madison drafted the Fourth Amendment, he cut and pasted from those state constitutions to make clear that you couldn't have searches that don't particularly specify places to be searched and a person or things to be seized. You teach the Fourth Amendment. What do you tell your students about what its importance is? Well, it really is, I think, at the core of, of our civil liberties, right? It really protects, as Jeffrey said, against uh, these general warrants and the tyranny of the king. I mean, remember, our framers came from a place of deep suspicion of, of overweening federal or, or governmental power. Um, and so when they built our system of governance, they built a federal government of limited powers, and then they laid out the specific rights that the people were entitled to. And at the, one, of the core, one of the core rights was the right to be protected against these unreasonable searches and seizures. So as we get into the particulars of this case, there are a couple of personalities that people will hear about as we proceed. One is Charles Katz himself. What can you tell us about Charles Katz? Well, you know, a consummate gambler, as he's described, uh, as you pointed out, a leading basketball handicapper in the United States. Um, uh, he uh, had residences in New York and Los Angeles at the time of his arrest. Um, he was living in a hotel on the 8200 block of Sunset Boulevard, um, the famous Sunset Strip, uh, famous for uh, many rock bands, uh, all sorts of things. Um, and uh, he used to stroll down the street uh, to a set of three phone booths that were right on the street 
in order to conduct his uh, his interstate gambling uh, mission. The FBI got wind of this, and that's what led to this case was the was the the wiretapping or well the surveillance of those phone booths when he went in there. Some wags sent me a tweet last week, but we have to explain what phone booths were. That's true. <laughs> that's yeah, real, uh, we don't have very many of them around anymore. Uh, yeah. uh, Harvey Schneider, who is he? He's now a retired Los Angeles Superior Court judge, and he was the law partner of a guy called uh, Burton uh, Marks. And Burton Marks, we have to note, made a great filing in this case. When he filed the brief, he said, uh, thanks to a typo, a man has a mu as much a right to bet alone in a public phone booth as, as, as in his own home. So Schneider took over the case from Burton Marks, and it was Schneider who came up with the brilliant theory at the core of the case that rather than focusing on what's a constitutionally protected place, the question should be, borrowing from tort law, do people have reasonable expectations of privacy? Schneider remembered his own law school class where he studied the views of the reasonable man, and he made that argument before the Supreme Court, and it ended up defining the case. So that must make both of you who teach law feel pretty good about the importance of individual classes and the impact that they can have on your students overall. This is one class that sparked a, 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 a brainstorm for this lawyer as he was approaching the case. Absolutely, and this is the most exciting uh, sort of case to teach in criminal procedure because it does inspire people to transform the amendment and to translate it in light of new technologies. That was what uh, Sh Harvey Schneider did, that's what Louis Brandeis insisted the court should do, and that's what C-SPAN viewers should try to do with us tonight. Potter Stewart, uh, we're going to hear a bit more about the court overall, but he's an important character in this. Uh, tell us a little bit about yeah. him. So a Justice Supreme Court appointed by, uh, by President Eisenhower, uh, served in uh, World War II as a member of the Navy Reserves, um, oftentimes found himself uh, in dissent uh, during the Warren Court era. Um, but uh, in this case, uh, in the majority, um, writing perhaps a slightly narrower opinion than what Katz is known for. Uh, the Katz is really known uh, for Justice Harlan's concurrence. Uh, so Potter Stewart had the majority um, and, and, and had the votes, but uh, ultimately the really influential uh, opinion come out of this case was uh, Justice Harlan's concurrence. You've referred to him uh, and you've written the biography on him, but Louis Brandeis is not on the court in this time, but he's an important character in this case. Why? Louis Brandeis wrote the most important privacy dissent of the 20th century, and I want viewers to go read it. It's in the Olmstead case, and you can get it online right now, although keep watching the show, so read it after the show is over. And Brandeis in Olmstead is dissenting from Chief Justice Taft's majority opinion. I love Taft very much uh, right now and, uh, and, and write about him in this book, but Chief Justice Taft had said in Olmstead, you need a physical trespass in order to trigger the Fourth Amendment. And that it was a case involving wiretapping and another big bootlegger of his time. And there the wiretap was under a public sidewalk, so there was no physical trespass. Brandeis, in his amazing descent, looks forward to the age of cyberspace and fMRI technologies and says, ways may someday be developed by which it's possible without physically intruding into desk drawers to extract secret papers and introduce them in court. Brandeis said that the right in question was the right to be let alone and the amendment had to be translated to protect the same amount of privacy in the age of the wires as the framers took for granted in the 18th and 19th centuries. We're in the era of uh, the time when oral arguments are being recorded by the court. And so to give you the particulars of this case, uh, we're going to listen. We mentioned earlier that the lawyer in the case was Harvey Schneider. And we're going to listen to him in the oral argument as he tees up the particulars and the facts in the case for the justices. And that'll help us understand the story that, that brings us to the Supreme Court. Let's listen. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. 
The facts of the, this case that is now before the court are really quite simple. The law applicable is something else again. But the facts are as follows. Mr. Katz was surveilled by agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation for a period of approximately six days. During that period of time, the surveillance was conducted by the use of a microphone being taped on top of a public telephone booth, or a bank of booths. It was actually three booths. One booth had been placed out of order by the telephone company and with the telephone company's cooperation. The other two booths were used by Mr. Katz. Some, sometimes he used one booth, sometimes he used another. The tape was placed on top of the booth, or the microphone was placed on top of the booth, by a tape. The FBI agents had undoubtedly read their homework and had not physically penetrated into the area of the telephone booth. Subsequently, after about six days of surveillance, Mr. Katz was arrested. We have a period picture of the telephone booths on Sunset Boulevard that were really a character in this case. So could you explain the authority under which the FBI agents were operating at the time? Sure. So, you know, the FBI agents, their understanding was that, as Jeff laid out, that as long as you didn't invade the physical space of a constitutionally protected space, a home or the like, there wasn't a problem. So they didn't bother to go get a warrant. They knew that they had been watching Mr. Katz for a while. They knew it was his normal order of business to leave his hotel, walk down the street, take a stroll, enter the phone booths, make his bets in one of these three phone booths, or take the bets, I should say, and then wander off. So what they did was they put this microphone on top of the booths without invading them, and they set the microphones up so they could record what was happening inside the phone booths. And then as Mr. Katz would walk down, an agent would follow him, and they would send the high sign to one of the other agents to go to the booth, turn on the microphone so they didn't record anybody else, and then Mr. Katz would do his thing. And so the authority essentially was they weren't violating Supreme Court's decisions in penetrating a constitutionally protected space. So their theory is we don't need a warrant for this, and so they taped it, and that's how we ended up in court. What law was he breaking? Is betting illegal? What about it attracted the FBI's interest in the first place? There are statutes involving money laundering, and there are also ones against betting, and I'm trying to get the exact one here. Here it is. This is thanks to the Great National Constitution Center prep team. It's 18 U.S.C. 1804, a law against the transmission of wagering information by telephone, and it forbids betting or wagering, knowingly using a wire communication facility for the transmission in interstate or foreign commerce of bets or wagers. So he probably was violating the law, but the question is whether the search, as Jamil well explained it, was constitutional or not, and if it wasn't, according to existing case law, the evidence had to be excluded, so everything turned on the constitutionality of the underlying search. So what was illegal about it in the FBI's mind was that it was interstate. Right. If he had been making a local phone call, it would not have been so... Well, if the gambling at least was local, it wouldn't have been used to interstate wires. It wouldn't have violated federal law, and so that's how we ended up in federal court, in this case in what was then the Southern District of California, now the Central District, and that's how it wound its way from that court up to the Ninth Circuit and then ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know the famous line in the case that he said on the phone that was the hallmark of his betting, so you want to tell the audience what it was? Yeah, he said, and now of course I'm going to forget it, but he said he'd take Duquesne minus seven for a nickel. And the question was, 
was this a bet? I think anybody who's ever you know gone to Vegas and, and placed a bet on uh, on on sports uh, knows that. Uh, you know, uh, you know the uh, the the basketball team was favored, and uh, and he was betting, uh, you know, five hundred bucks. Do we know if Duquesne won? That's a great question. <laughs> I, I don't know I don't the know answer. Either. We, we got to figure out the viewers. Yeah, figure it out. Um, but he was, and he, but he was taking you know tons of bets on this line, um, and he was he was calling you know all of his all of his acquaintances and and the people that gambled with him and the people that he placed his bets with, because um, he was a bookmaker, so he was placing bets on both sides of the thing, taking bets and placing them. Sort of to you know to engage in, in the process, and so um, you know he was he was he was literally the biggest basketball handicapper of his time. And oh, go ahead. it's really striking. Olmstead was the biggest bootlegger of his time. That's right. So these are not small potato yeah. guys. And it's interesting that in both cases the uh, feds didn't take the time to get warrants because th- these guys were under serious enough suspicion that m- they might have done so, but they didn't, and they gave rise to these landmark cases. Yeah. I have a timeline of the events leading up to this case, and I want to walk through it so you can see how the events proceeded. So uh, the FBI started bugging the phone booths all the way back in February of 1965 on Sunset Boulevard. And uh, and just a short time later, February 25th, 1965, uh, Mr. Katz was arrested on eight counts of illegally transmitting bets. Um, At May 30th of 1965, he was convicted and fined $300. $300. That seems pretty small, actually, for eight counts. Uh, November 17th, 1966, uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals upholds the conviction. And March 13th, 1967, the Supreme Court decides it is actually going to hear the case. So um, eight counts uh, is a lot. If you had a client that was yeah. facing eight, eight federal counts, what would you say about uh, how serious this was for him? Well, look. I mean, they had him dead to rights. They had him. They had him on 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 the uh, on the recorder, um, getting on the phone, making those phone calls. Um, so his his lawyers didn't have a great. Oh no, he didn't do it. And they had the famous, you know, Duquesne minus seven line. And so there wasn't a good argument that he wasn't in fact engaging in gambling. So they had to come up with a theory of why uh, the evidence could be introduced. And and the theory was uh, this was not uh, that people have an expectation of privacy when he went into that phone booth. And close that door. Um, either he was creating a space for himself, or um, he had this expectation that the, that the, the government couldn't surveil without a warrant. And having done so, um, uh, that that they couldn't use that evidence against him without a warrant. So why would the Ninth Circuit have upheld his conviction? What did the, what was their legal reasoning? Well, it was clearly legal under existing law. The Olmstead case said that you needed physical trespass in order to trigger the Fourth Amendment. And just as in Olmstead, they put the wiretaps under a public sidewalk leading up to Olmstead's office, here it was a public phone booth uh, in which Katz had no pro- property interests. There was a separate jurisprudence about constitutionally protected spaces, but those were focused on things defined by property rights, like the home. So the Ninth Circuit was simply applying Chief Justice Taft's existing law, as good lower courts should, and it required a conceptual leap by Harvey Schneider and the willingness to embrace that leap by the Supreme Court in order to strike down the search. Will you explain the process of getting from the Ninth Circuit to the Supreme Court? Yes, yeah, so um, so once they got their decision from the Ninth Circuit, uh, they had a chance to file a petition for a writ of certiorari, that is, a uh, petition for, for uh, discretionary review by the Supreme Court. Uh, in the modern era, the Supreme Court takes a very small percentage of all the cases. Um, it typically takes cases that are of national importance or where there's a split between the circuits um, and some disagreement among the lower courts. In this case, the law was fairly clear, right? As Jeff has laid out, 
the law uh, the law coming from Olmsted was clear. You had to have a physical penetration. The law from Goldman, another important Supreme Court case in the space, was clear that you could use a device placed on the outside of a of a wall. In that case, it was a, detect, a detectaphone, essentially a, a large uh, ear that you could sort of place up against the wall and hear through the wall. And they had essentially done this on top of the phone booth. So the law in this space was fairly clear. And so, uh, you know, and, and as far as I recall, there was not a circuit split on this question. And so, um, so this was a case the Supreme Court was taking in part because there was this deep concern about the modern era and the evolution of, of communications and the concern that its law at the time did not address those issues effectively. Well, what about the cooperation of the phone company? Was that was that all, a given at that time, or? Well, you know, this was a, this was an area, you know, uh, in the 1960s where, um, uh, at least for the longest period, the phone companies have been pretty cooperative. As we know, in this case, they had gone to the phone company at a time again without a warrant and said, "Could you please put one of these boots out of order so we can place a recorder on top of the other two boots and place a microphone on each with one recorder set in the middle?" If they'd had three boots, it would have been hard to set the recorder up. And so, the phone company was cooperative enough to do that. Now. They didn't go to the phone company and ask them to put a wiretap on it, um, and and you know I, I guess I guess I'm not I'm not sure why. Maybe they were concerned about about the space there. Although given Olmstead, I don't think there would have been a problem. It's true. Although the wiretapping laws were just being worked out here, the Berger case in '68 gave instructions to Congress, which responded in uh, the Wiretapping yes, Act of '68. So the, the the federal law may have been uncertain, and that's maybe yeah. why the phone company went along. Yeah. But they were not the apple of their day. There's no question about right. it. They didn't refuse to cooperate. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and do we know anything about the Burton Marks law firm and how uh, what kinds of cases they took on? Did he hire her high-priced representation? Well, Marks Marks was a famous uh, you know uh, a defender of of the of the um, of the accused, um, and so he was known for being a fierce advocate. Um, but the interesting part is is the role that his law partner played in this case, and really developing this theory um, and the arguments that he made, and actually his his uh, his his deafness on his feet before the court, I think, really brought the court around. I mean, the the case was ultimately seven uh, one, right? Uh, um, uh, Justice Marshall did not participate, um, uh, but ultimately only one dissenter. So he was able to convince seven members of the court to go along with a complete change and overruling of two prior big precedents. And there was a, a split behind the scenes, and it was originally uh, sort of either five to four or four to four, and then Potter Stewart changed his mind in light of the argument, and that brought along the other justices, leaving only Justice Black in dissent. Unusual to see that dramatic a split, and it was because of the creative arguments of Harvey Schneider. So let's pay tribute to the great Harvey Schneider for having changed the law of the Fourth Amendment. Well, next we're going to meet him. So okay. how about that? And, and by, by videotape. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Um, we've mentioned that there's really very little known about Charles Katz, and one of the ideas behind this series is to tell the people's stories. And we know about the particulars of his case, but really not a whole lot about him. And next you're going to hear from uh, Harvey Schneider uh, talking a bit about Charles Katz, and then also our producer for this series, Nathan Hurst, on his efforts to find out more. One thing we know about Charles Katz, he paid his legal bills in cash, uh, but we'll learn a little bit more in this next clip. By the time we were heading back to Washington, Charlie Katz was in form of pauperous, which means he could no longer afford to pay fees. But who cares? When you get a case before the Supreme Court, you don't worry about whether your client can pay fees. 
Um, what's so interesting, though, is this is a man who had eight felony counts against him at one point, um, clearly had a profile with FBI and other law enforcement. However, we cannot find a photograph of the man. It was never published in any sort of newspaper, newswire, nothing like that. There's no video of him. Um, even while his case was being adjudicated, he never um, showed up to court other than to be arraigned. In today's age, it's pretty hard for people to disappear that completely. Does it surprise you that there's so little, not even a, a booking photograph of him? It, it is surprising. You know, I mean, uh, you know, you just think about the modern era, and, and a lot of this case really relates to what we're doing in the modern era. And are smartphones protected, right? Are the photographs in your phone protected from government uh, surveillance without a warrant or even with a warrant under what circumstances and how you might get it? Uh, so it is amazing that, that sort of the progenitor of all of this discussion can't even find a photo of the guy. Let's take a look at the makeup of the court. The Eisenhower appointees still serving on the court at that point, Chief Justice Earl Warren, John Marshall Harlan II, William Brennan, and Potter Stewart. Roosevelt appointees, Hugo Black and William O. Douglas. Uh, the Kennedy appointee, Byron White, and Johnson appointee, Abe Fortas and Thurgood Marshall. And as we mentioned, Thurgood Marshall uh, did not participate in this particular decision. Explain why, please. He was Solicitor General in the, in just before the case, and it was appointed right around the time. So maybe you can talk more generally about the, the Solicitor Generals and, and the conflict of interest that they would have. Sure. So the Solicitor General of the United States is, the, uh, is typically the practitioner for the government uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, he is the lead, uh, he or she's the lead appellate lawyer for the government, uh, typically. Um, and it's their office that argues the cases before the courts. Occasionally, they'll argue cases before the courts of appeals. Um, uh, and really in cases of high importance to the government. Um, and in this case, the, um, uh, uh, ostensibly uh, his role previously, previously having served as Solicitor General, uh, you know, he, it could have been that the case was up for uh, consideration during the petition for certiorari, um, and the Solicitor General's office weighed in on behalf of the United States, ostensibly argue, presumably arguing that the case should not be granted, uh, wanting to have, have upheld the decision of the Ninth Circuit uh, convicting uh, or upholding the conviction uh, of Mr. Katz. They obviously were unsuccessful. The case ended up coming to the court, and uh, and my guess is that's probably why he didn't participate. You spoke earlier about the Warren Court's legacy, particularly in the areas of criminal rights. Um, could you talk generally about the makeup of the court uh, and, and some of the alliances that had been forming over the years that the Warren Court was around? The core of the Warren Court was the alliance between Earl Warren and William Brennan, who was Warren's uh, deputy and helped corral majorities. Uh, other liberals included Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Potter Stewart, uh, as Jamil said, was viewed as a centrist who kind of liked to write narrowly and could go uh, either way. Um, uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan, who wrote the concurring opinion in Katz, was really on the conservative wing. And he had dissented from several of the criminal procedure cases as well as the voting rights cases. Um, and then uh, there was Hugo Black, who this lone dissenter in Katz. And Black was a liberal textualist appointed by Roosevelt. He went to sleep every night reading the Constitution and burned a hole in his pillow because he would stay up uh, communing with the original text. And he believed that uh, no law meant no law in the First Amendment. And although he was a great civil libertarian, he couldn't bring himself to make up rights that weren't in the Constitution. And he thought that conversations were not covered by the Fourth Amendment, and for that reason, he dissented. Do you have more to say about that court? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and, and he, I, think, I think he thought so because, of course, the text of the amendment doesn't mention it. It talks about persons and houses and papers and effects. And, and so Black was struggling with this. He said, this, this, 
I, I might even want to consider, I might even want conversations to be covered, but they're just not there. And he was very focused on, sort of, he was an absolutist, right? And he was very much focused on the text of the, of the Constitution, couldn't, couldn't bring himself to, uh, to find an expansive definition in there. Um, and so, uh, so I think that was part of what was at the heart of his dissent, um, you know, in this case. In, in granting the uh, writ of certiorari, the, the deciding to hear the case, we've learned in some of our past installments that the justices might have been looking for an excuse to, to revisit a certain part of law. Was that the case here? I mean, why did they take on the Katz case in the first place? Well, they're obviously struggling with the question of wiretapping. They're trying to translate the amendment in light of these new technologies. And I think there's an understanding that focusing on constitutionally protected places was not adequate at a time when you could invade the places virtually rather than actually. But they hadn't come up with a solution. That's why the questions they posed to the lawyers said, is it a constitutionally protected place? And why it was so significant that Justice Stewart, in his opinion, basically conceded error and said, although this is the question we asked, that's the wrong question. The real question is um, the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. So you could actually see him acknowledging that the court's mind had been changed by the argument itself. So Mr. Katz's lawyer, Harvey Schneider, was, as we've heard, up against a great deal of legal precedent as he went before the justices to make his argument. He was also an attorney without very much experience. He was only a few years out of law school. In our next clip, we're going to hear from him today talking about uh, his, uh, his epiphany as he was thinking about the arguments he was going to make in this case, which differed from the arguments that they had set out in their writ of certiorari in the first place. We'll learn more about that from him, and then we'll also listen to a bit of the oral argument. I'm sitting in my office one day, and I'm ruminating about cats, probably ruminated about little else during that period of time. And I thought back to my time in law school, and in particular my course in torts, and we were taught with regard to the tort of negligence, that a negligence was doing something a reasonable man would not do or failing to do what a reasonable man would do. We called him TARM, the average reasonable man. And then it occurred to me, we had it wrong and the court had it wrong. The inquiry ought not to be whether there was physical penetration or, or whether there was a constitutional protected area. The inquiry ought to be whether the person whose conversation was intercepted had a reasonable expectation of privacy. Uh, and when we got to the court in, in, in October, um, I violated a very significant rule of the court uh, because you're not supposed to raise in oral argument anything that you did not brief. Well, I never briefed a, a reasonable expectation of privacy because I hadn't thought of it. They were really kind to me. They, 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 were, they were listening and not interruptive because I was proposing to them a test uh, and a solution to a problem that had vexed them for decades. The constitutional protection would not apply, I think, is the way to phrase it. Uh, we have in, I indicated this morning that we think that the right to privacy, which is the Fourth Amendment's uh, concern, as I understand it, follows the individual. And we would base our contention upon this by a reading or literal reading of the Fourth Amendment. I respectfully call the Court's attention that the Fourth Amendment, after I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but it says that people have a right to be, quote, secure in their persons. 
That is the very first item of protection that is contained in the First Amendment. It says persons, the Fourth Amendment says persons, then it says houses, and I believe it says personal effects and one other item. But it's significant to note, I think, that the very first item of protection in the Fourth Amendment is persons. And we would contend that this fact alone lends credence to our view that privacy does follow the individual. So there's so much I want to ask both of you about that. Uh, here we have a person who's never argued before the Supreme Court before. And uh, you heard how he approached this and really kind of turned the thinking on its head. What's your reaction? My reaction is that this is amazing. You know, it doesn't happen much that the court changes its mind at oral argument. It certainly doesn't happen often that the vote behind the scenes changes. And I think it almost never happens that a fundamental transformation in constitutional doctrine happens on the fly because a single lawyer has a flash of inspiration and argues it before the court and they listen respectfully and actually embrace his suggestion. I hadn't known before learning from landmark cases and seeing Harvey Schneider's interview exactly how pivotal he had been. And just in real time to see the uh, oral argument, he says, when Justice White asked me a question that seemed to suggest he was focusing on a subjective test, I responded, no, the question is it's an objective test of whether a third party would arrive at that conclusion. You're just seeing constitutional law being made in real time. This is extraordinary. It's, it's unusual, it's important, and it transformed the law of the Fourth Amendment. So thank you, Susan, for having created this episode to teach us this really significant change. So let's listen to the argument that the government was making in Katz. It was made by John S. Martin, Jr. He was an assistant to the Solicitor General tasked with this important case. And the reason, as we said, was Thurgood Marshall, Solicitor General, was being nominated to the court. So there was a, a turnover in the Solicitor General's office. So we're going to listen uh, as he is responding to questions from Justice Byron White. But we're dealing, we're dealing with a public phone booth. We are dealing with something different. And it's our position that even if this court were to say that public phone booth was entitled to some degree of protection under the Fourth Amendment, that it is not the same protection that comes to a house. Uh, public phone booth is more closely analogous, we submit, to a public field, certainly than it is to a home. And a party in a public phone booth has no right to expect that he is going to be accorded all the protections he would be in a private house. We submit that what was done here was not an indiscriminate search and seizure that, such as was condemned by this court in Irvine. Uh, it was a very careful, it was carefully limited, one, to only involving a particular petitioner, in this case, innocent members of the public were not subject to surveillance. In the only one instance in which this happened, the agents testified that the tape recorder involved was a stereotype, had two tracks, A and B, they could control which conversation that they would listen to, and they did not, in fact, listen to the conversation of, of the innocent party. Well, Mr. Martin, what did you seize in this fellow? You say this was a reasonable search of a, of a, of a what? Well, what I would say that is under this court's uh, opinion in Berger, I think the words were seized. Right, so the words were seized, and, uh, uh, and the admissibility, the admissibility of that uh, evidence, those conversations depend upon the reasonableness of that search. And uh, one of the rules about reasonableness of searches under Rule 41 is you can't search for mere evidence. Now, do you think a word, these words over the telephone, was a fruit or an instrumentality? Certainly, I think in this case, they were the actual means and instrumentalities of the crime. The crime is to transport wagering information or wagers uh, over the interstate uh, facilities, the telephone, telephone facilities. Jamil Jaffer, would you help 
people decode uh, how the, the justices' questions and how effectively the, uh, the, the Solicitor General's office was answering yeah. it. So the hard thing about this case, one of the things we hadn't quite gotten to yet in this discussion was, can you search or seize intangible things, right? Uh, we typically think of the Fourth Amendment, or at least at that point, had been thinking about the Fourth Amendment as protecting these places, these you know places that can be searched, uh, persons that can be seized, right? And here we're talking about conversations, and the court had just been developing this this doctrine of whether you could seize out of the air, right? These words, these conversations, and whether uh, there were, the, and then the question was, okay, if you could seize these things, how do you determine whether they've been seized and what the expectation, what the privacy right is, uh, what the right in those intangible things is? And that was the conversation that was going on between uh, the lawyer and Justice White. Interestingly, Justice White uh, was the justice that Justice Gorsuch clerked for when he was a, when he was a law clerk um, on the Supreme Court. Um, and so interesting to see how this plays out. Byron White, of course, a, a famous football player, uh, Byron Wizard White. Um, and the, uh, in the courthouse that Justice Gorsuch sat in for the decade before he came to, uh, came to the Supreme Court was the Byron White Courthouse out there in Denver, Colorado. So the decision came down on December 18, 1967, and it was, as we said, a 7-1 decision in favor of Katz. Um, and here's how it lined up. The Chief Justice, uh, of course, uh, and then a majority opinion, as we said, written by Potter Stewart, and joined by Warren, William Douglas, John Harlan, William Brennan, Wizard White, Byron Wright, and Abe Fortas. There were three concurrences in the case, John Marshall Harlan, uh, wrote one separately, as did Douglas and Byron White, and then one dissent, Hugo Black. Uh, here is a bit of the, an excerpt from uh, Justice Potter Stewart's majority. Once it is recognized that the Fourth Amendment protects people and not simply areas against unreasonable searches and seizures, it becomes clear that the reach of that amendment cannot turn upon the presence or absence of a physical intrusion into any given enclosure. You were telling us earlier that there was a backstory uh, there about alliances on that. So explain how we have three concurrences in this and, and, and how people uh, decided to join in the majority opinion. Yes, so this backstory is uh, an account by Peter Wynn, and there was an initial split after the oral argument four to four along the same lines as the certiorari vote, um, which would have affirmed the lower court. But two weeks later, Justice Stewart changed his mind and joined the justices voting to reverse. He circulated a draft opinion, um, which was uh, and, and a memorandum initially composed by Professor Lawrence Tribe, who was one of Justice Stewart's law clerks. So a shout out to Professor Tribe for this uh, important role in the case. And Justice Stewart was influenced by the Wiretap Act, which was being debated in Congress at the time. And he was also influenced by the recent decision in the Berger case. Once Justice Stewart changed his mind, then others fell into place, Justices White and Harlan, who uh, also changed their position, and that left Justice Black as the sole dissenter, and Justice Stewart wrote the opinion. Well, let's hear from uh, Harvey Schneider, Charles Katz's lawyer, upon uh, hearing the Supreme Court's decision. I think the decision was December, so there was about between October and December, that's two or three months, and you, you just wait. And then you get in the mail, you get uh, uh, a, um, the decision from the court, which uh, seven to one, we, we won. And it was uh, exhilarating. The very next case that I had when I returned from arguing before the Supreme Court was representing a guy on a traffic ticket in Inglewood, California. That's going from 
the heights to the depths. Uh, how human is that clip? Uh, in the McGeorge Law Review, uh, many years later, uh, Mr. Schneider also added a postscript in his description of the case. This is what he wrote. Uh, there is a postscript to Cats which the reader might find interesting and perhaps demonstrative of human nature. When Burton Marks informed Katz of the historic decision that now bears his name, his first response was not one of thanks or gratitude. Rather, he wanted to know if he could sue the telephone company for permitting the FBI agents to put the telef one telephone booth out of order. And so it goes, he writes. Well, and we have just a couple of minutes, and I want to bring this all together. So it's, as you've talked about, this is evolving on so many different tracks at the same time. First of all, we have increased threats to this nation, uh, both uh, foreign and domestic. Technology is moving at the speed of light, and devices are coming in that we could not even imagine two years ago, That, uh, along with software. So we've got the commercial sphere as well. Um, so over this course of time, do we know how important CATS is going to be? We know that CATS will serve as an inspiration to judges and citizens to translate the protections of the amendment so we have the same amount of privacy in the age of the wires and of cell phones and of Facebook as we did at the time of the framing. As Jamil said, you know, the amendment says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say Mark Zuckerberg shall make no law. But it's not enough to say that simply because we sign a user agreement, then we have no privacy. And the challenge, there's not an easy answer, but I think that Congress and citizens and regulators and the Federal Trade Commission, but ultimately we the people have to be as creative as those justices were and as Harvey Schneider was. He's the hero of our show tonight. So thank you, Ju Judge Schneider, for having challenged the court to translate the amendment in light of these new technologies. And that's what all of us have to do now that our privacy is being threatened not only by the government, but also by private actors. So, Jamil, closing comments to you, the enduring nature of CATS, what would you say about it? Well, it certainly is an enduring precedent. It certainly does influence every debate about the Fourth Amendment and about government surveillance, whether in the national security context or in the criminal context today. It's very much a live topic, both in our in our political bodies, in the legislature, um, and frankly, between the legislative branch and the executive branch in, in recent weeks and months, and at the court. And so, enduring certainly to the present day, um, will things change? Inevitably, the court will take up more cases and will will evolve the law. Will it, will cats be, uh, be uh, forgotten? I highly doubt it. We're about halfway through our series. If you've been watching with us in each one of these programs, we have said thank you to the National Constitution Center. Tonight's my opportunity to do that with the president of the National Constitution Center sitting right here. So thanks to you and your team for all of the help you've given us in this series. Thank you for this wonderful collaboration and for educating Americans about the U.S. Constitution. That's it for our program tonight. Thank you for being with us.